Hi, welcome to the Beverage Report podcast. I'm Sarah, a third-year economics student at the LSE. In this episode, I speak to Mr. Huin Songqing, the economic advisor and head of research at the BIS, Bank for International Settlements. We talk about what central bank digital currencies are and how BIS is involved in the development of central bank digital currencies. We also explore the rise of decentralized finance and what it means to the traditional financial system. We hope you enjoy it. Mr. Xing, thank you so much for joining us today. My first question is, what are the responsibilities and objectives of the Bank for International Settlements, and what does your role as the economic advisor and head of research entail? Well, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast, Sarah. Um, the, uh, let me start with uh, who we are. Um, the BIS is an international organization. It's uh, it's in fact the oldest international organization. Um, uh, we were set up in 1930. And um, uh, our members are central banks. Uh, we now have 63 central banks as members. Um, uh, it's not a universal membership like the IMF, um, but uh, in terms of the economic weight, um, the 63 countries, they account for around 95% of uh, global GDP. Um, and the BIS's role is to is to um, is to support the central bank mission. Um, you know, our vision is to promote uh, global monetary and financial stability by supporting uh, the central banks' um, uh, uh, missions themselves. And we do it uh, through a number of ways. We uh, um, we foster international cooperation uh, by providing a forum. Uh, for meetings and dialogue and, and the broad international cooperation. And we also um, provide a, a platform for uh, innovation and knowledge sharing. And, and I can uh, you know, uh, elaborate on that a little bit later. And of course, we also conduct in-depth uh, analysis. And, uh, and I would like to think that we you know, provide a lot of good insights on uh, the kind of policy issues that are of interest to to central banks, um, and not least, uh, you know, we have bank in our name, uh, and uh, and that points to the fact that we also are a bank for central banks. So we provide banking services to uh, to central banks, and the and the and that is you know much broader than simply to our membership. It's a it's a much broader set of customers. Now, what do I do? Well. Just to give you some kind of uh, scale, some sense of the scale, the BIS has around uh, 600 odd um, staff members. Um, uh, and I co-lead um, this department called the, the Monetary and Economic Department, which is around 200 staff members. It's around one third, uh, if you like, of the, of the BIS. And this is the main part of the, of the BIS that conducts uh, economic analysis, economic research. Uh, we also host um, uh, important central bank committees, um, uh, you know, like the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which I think you must have heard of. Uh, and there are other committees, um, standard-setting committees, but also uh, important uh, you know, uh, monitoring committees as well. And we also compile statistics uh, that we disseminate through our 
through our statistical through our statistical functions. Um, so that in a in a nutshell is what we do and uh, and what I do. What are the most notable achievements of the BIS in the last few few years? Well, that's a good question, Sarah. And um, I think it's worth just putting that into the broader context. Um, the BIS is 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 um, is here primarily to uh, to really serve central banks to uh, to help them um, uh, fulfill their mandates. And if you think about some of the some of the big challenges that are out there. Um, the central bank is really uh, at the heart of some of these, you know, really big challenges. You know, like digitalization, like the need to uh, improve the payment system, especially cross-border payment system, uh, like the implementation of uh, financial reform. Uh, you know, after the great financial crisis, uh, there was a huge uh, concerted effort to um, to really strengthen and update and um, and revamp some of the uh, some of the regulatory uh, frameworks and um, and the BIS has really been you know at the heart of that. So 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 I you know I would say that in in all of these fronts we've made um, uh, you know broad progress. But if you ask me to pick one particular uh, accomplishment, I would I would point to um, the setting up of the BIS Innovation Hub. Uh, so this is a this is a new uh, unit inside the BIS. Um, I was the interim head of the um, of the BIS Innovation Hub when it was set up in in 2019, and it's part of um, our uh, innovation so-called Innovation 2025 strategy. It's a kind of medium-term strategy, which lays out uh, you know vision for uh, the central banking world and the BIS's place, um, you know, in that, uh, uh, you know, in that, uh, you know, uh, larger effort. Um, you know, we can get to some of the things being done in the hub, uh, you know, later, but uh, the other, I think, important point to mention is that uh, when we opened the hub in 2019, uh, you know, we did so um, in collaboration with central banks. So, you know, we are uh, you know, in these uh, innovation hub centers um, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, um, uh, and also here in Switzerland, but also we've you know opened uh, you know new ones in uh, in in um, Stockholm, in London, um, and we're uh, just about to open the centers in Toronto and Frankfurt. In all of these centers, we are collaborating um, you know very closely with the with the host central banks. Um, and indeed, the staff members are drawn from the host central banks as well, uh, as well as the other central banks in the region. So in, so in this respect, what we're doing is we are playing the role of a uh, focal point, if you like, of the, of the central bank efforts. Um, so um, I think the, the innovation hub uh, really is uh, putting in place, you know, putting into practice uh, the, these kind of ideals that I laid out earlier on uh, of really facilitating the work of central banks and uh, being um, the catalyst, if you like, for allowing central banks to uh, to really keep ahead of the um, uh, of the demands that are placed on central banks themselves. Prior to joining the BIS, you were professor at Princeton at LSC. 
How does BIS research differ from a purely academic approach? Well, I mean, uh, let me just say that uh, you know, uh, my time at the at the LSE was probably you know my uh, most fun time. Um, it uh, it's a great institution, and uh, and you're very lucky to be to be at the LSE. Uh, I really have very fond memories of the LSE. It's a place with great students uh, and great um, uh, you know fellow academics. I, I still you know have. Uh, you know, very good memories of um, of a very productive time there, um, and if you like, it's um, it's also you know the kind of things that I'm doing now um, here as as uh, part of the BIS research effort has a great deal of continuity, I would say, with what I was doing at the LSE. So um, so there, you know, I uh, worked on financial economics. Uh, I was uh, part of the financial markets group. Um, I was a colleague of Charles Goodhart. We had, uh, you know, many uh, very stimulating conversations about regulation. This was before the uh, the great financial crisis as well. Um, and and some of the the work, um, some of the earlier work with it, you know, very much fed into uh, you know in, into some of the some of the subsequent discussions. And Princeton has a very similar uh, kind of outlook to the. The approach that um, that um, that economists approach financial economics. Yeah, so it's it's uh, I think no accident that uh, many of the people at Princeton also have uh, very close LSE connections. Um, and in a way, the you know uh, the, the continuity is is more than the difference. Now, uh, there are of course differences between an academic institution and policy institution. Um, you know, we need to, we now at the BIS, we of course have to um, keep a much closer eye on, on all the relevant developments. We cannot just specialize and let other colleagues just, uh, you know, uh, take the slack in the other areas. We have to be um, keeping abreast of all the important developments. Uh, we need to be more current. Um, now, this doesn't mean that we neglect long-term research because it turns out that long-term research also informs the short-term research as well. Um, and so there's a very important strand in the long-term research that uh, really sustains uh, the quality of our, of our short-term conjunctural work. Um, but I would just uh, you know, reiterate the fact that the continuity with the, with the work that I used to do at the LSE um, is more important than some of the differences. Thank you. Um, a group of central banks and the BIS have been working together to explore central bank digital currencies. What makes CBDC so attractive to central banks? And has the pandemic accelerated the movement in any way? Well, the pandemic has definitely accelerated the movement. Um, why is it so attractive to central banks? Well, I think it's, um, it goes to the heart of you know, the central banks' um, you know, very mission and that uh, what central banks do is to issue the basic, you know, unit of account in the economy. Uh, uh, money is a promise of the central bank. And so the trust in money is really a trust, well, has to be grounded, if you like, in the trust in the central bank itself. Um, now, uh, the physical banknote, uh, you know, that is a promise that is a direct promise of the central bank to the holder of that uh, of that banknote. 
And CBDCs, you know, central bank digital currencies is just a digital form of that. So, you know, you, uh, it's a transfer, uh, you know, when you pay someone using a CBDC, or it's like paying someone with cash, um, except that you do it uh, uh, digitally. Um, so, so in that sense, it's a very natural idea. Now, um, why has it really come back into, uh, well, it's a very natural idea and a very old idea. And um, it's, uh, uh, you know, it is a very, um, uh, in a timeless uh, um, object. But why has it become uh, so much more topical right now? Well, I think it's because data um, and the centrality of data um, has really put many of these policies is right at the heart of the uh, of the monetary economics discussion. So what did I so what do I mean by the centrality of data? Well, you know, when we uh, when we think about the digital economy, um, the data trail that you leave when you uh, when you use a computer, when you you know visit websites, um, you know, that's a very important input into both uh, 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 you know digital businesses. Um, and in some ways, it's the raw material for some business models. And, um, you know, you can have cases where if uh, there is a, um, a firm, a digital firm that can uh, have proprietary control over the data, you know, that, that can be a tremendous advantage in, in competition. And so there's an issue to do with competition and access and, uh, and an open uh, and inexpensive uh, access to services. So that's one set of issues. Um, another set of issues have to do with um, keeping a very, um, you know, keeping a payment system uh, which has integrity in the sense that, that uh, it, uh, um, it is a system that uh, uh, is free from the, um, that, is free from the worst excesses of, let's say, money laundering or scams and thefts, uh, and that means it's something that has, in some ways, to do uh, to keep track of, um, you know, people under their own names, in some kind of digital ID uh, system. So, so unlike a, a, a cryptocurrency, which is based purely on holding a private key. And if that's the case, then there's an issue to do with data privacy. How do we uh, take care of data privacy, data governance? Uh, how do we protect the rights of individuals in that kind of uh, world? So it's these three imperatives, you know, competition, um, integrity from financial crime, and data privacy. So we call this the triple imperative. Um, and what we have argued is that uh, central bank digital currencies are really a very good way of uh, fulfilling, you know, this triple imperative of making sure that we have um, a payment system that is open, it's competitive, that they, you know, that, uh, no one actually has a monopoly of, of data. In fact, the ownership of data should be um, with the individual, and there are technical standards in the payment system that ensures. Um, uh, you know, effective competition, uh, effective entry, and a very, you know, vibrant uh, ecosystem of, um, of private sector participants. And the key word here is, uh, is interoperability. That's to say, 
um, service providers when they when they enter, um, you know, their services can actually um, uh, speak to other services so that you don't uh, have the formation of uh, so-called, uh, you know, walled gardens where um, you, know, you can actually monopolize, uh, you know, a particular ecosystem uh, and create silos. Um, so I think that's that's the short uh, answer, if you like, to your question. Um, CBDCs are a very good way of tackling this triple imperative uh, that arises from the centrality of data in the in the digital economy. Um, I, I guess just to just to follow up on uh, the data privacy issue. So obviously, CBDC has raised its concerns over data privacy, and jurisdictions may differ in their attitudes or legislation around data protection, which in turn makes cross-border development of CBDC more difficult. How is um, how is the BIS addressing this issue? That's a great question, Sarah. I, and uh, I think you've you've um, uh, really put your finger on a very important issue, which is how do we um, how do we ensure that uh, we respect the, the data privacy of individuals? How do we have a data governance framework that really um, uh, lays down the, the appropriate you know, governance frameworks for that kind of protection? And I think the, the way that we think about this is um, uh, um, it's not the right way to go to a purely anonymous system. Uh, so, of course, you know, one way of protecting data privacy is uh, is just to hide everyone's identity. Uh, you know, this is the way that, um, that Bitcoin and other, uh, you know, private key-based cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, um, address that issue. Um, because, you know, if, if you go down that route, you are opening yourself up, you're opening the system up to... Um, to money laundering, to theft, to um, um, to all kinds of other you know illicit activities. And I think the as soon as we actually have uh, real IDs um, and uh, you know the the digital identity system, if you like, is the cornerstone uh, of this. Um, the first thing to say is that there is a you know great range of different digital ID systems that can be put in place. Um, in fact, you know when you when you have an account with a with a you know big tech provider, if you have your Google or Apple ID, I mean that is also a digital ID. It's uh, it's uh, um, you know managed by the institution. It's managed by the firm itself. In the payment system, you know we can also have the digital ID systems that are maintained by a consortium of of banks, for example. So typically now. Uh, it's the commercial banks who are the, the guardians of, uh, of personal data. And uh, um, if you have commercial banks that come together and uh, form a, uh, a consortium, you know, they can also run a digital ID system you know, as a, a cooperative activity among the commercial banks. And this is, uh, for example, what happens in, in Sweden. Uh, in Sweden, the digital ID system is actually you know, maintained by a consortium of commercial banks. And then, of course, you know, we can go um, uh, you know, further along that spectrum where the government and the official sector has more of a role. Um, and then you have uh, examples like India or Singapore, 
uh, where you know you have a government issued uh, digital ID. It's a uh, you know it's a universal ID. Um, uh, in in the case of India, the digital ID system, which is called Aadhaar, also has a biometric element as well. And what that does is, of course, um, it opens um, financial access up. But uh, you're quite right to also point out that this also puts an onus on the government to to protect that data. Now, one way of dealing with um, the potential you know, abuse of data is to make sure that uh, uh, whoever you are, whether you're a commercial bank that has access to your personal data or you're the tax authority or the central bank itself, that you only have the data that's absolutely necessary for um, for um, implementing or executing the transactions that uh, are under your, uh, you know, control. Uh, for example, you know, if if the central bank has to transfer a CBB, uh, uh, transfer a CBDC from one person to another, uh, it only needs to know the digital ID uh, of the two people, and it doesn't need to know, for example, your real name or your um, your date of birth or, you know, where you live, as long as there is some other repository where those, you know, that kind of information is stored. Um, so, uh, if, for example, you know, it's just your mobile phone number, uh, that is your digital ID, uh, and that's, you know, verified through your telecoms uh, company, then that's really only, that's the, the, the only thing you need to actually you know, transact uh, and execute that transaction. So we call it the, the jigsaw puzzle principle. Yeah. So you only have uh, you being, well, really anyone, um, uh, whether it be the central bank or a telecoms company or the, um, or the tax authority, um, you only need to have that uh, sliver of information that is absolutely necessary for you know, executing a transaction. And it's only the individual who uh, has the full picture of the of the jigsaw puzzle, and uh, you know underlying all of this is the technology of public key cryptography. Um, so this is a technology which goes way back to the 1970s. You know, it's in fact the technology that's underlying uh, Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, um, whereby uh, you know when you uh, string the blocks together and you're using the hash uh, of the of the computation, you're using, you know, public key cryptography to make sure that people can verify that you are the one that solved the puzzle uh, that actually enables you to hitch the next block. In the in the banking system, in the payment system, public key cryptography is used um, all the time because this is something that uh, underlies um, the the technology to make sure that. Uh, individual privacy is respected. Um, so when a bank sends um, a, a payment on your behalf and instructs the other bank, um, the other bank doesn't need to know anything more about you than simply the fact that this, um, you know, your, your uh, authentication has been verified and that uh, you know, this is a genuine, genuine transaction. And that exact you know, technology can be used for, for CBDCs as well. So, uh, you know, we're pretty um, comfortable, I think, uh, in the, the, you know, with the fact that CBDCs can protect identity, uh, can protect individual privacy. But of course, you know, the, the, the really big question here is that 
those governance frameworks, you know, they have to be backed by uh, the broader, you know, governance um, institutions in the country itself. So if the if the political system or if uh, you know public uh, administration itself, uh, you know, doesn't have the requisite standards, then of course, you know, uh, the rules, uh, you know, will not be, uh, uh, you know, worth, uh, you know, that much as they're written on 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 the paper. But if we go down that route, I think that really applies for really any aspect of life. And so I think um, so. So we're not uh, you know naive about this. Uh, but uh, I think uh, you know we're pretty comfortable that uh, given the important places central banks have, given the important safeguards that are out there, uh, that you know data privacy is something that we can uh, that we can deal with in a in a satisfactory way. Now, now that we're back at the topic of CBDC, um, on the sort of on the macroeconomic policy front front of this topic. Some economists were worried that the CBDC may blur the distinction between monetary and fiscal policies and that an increase in the size of the central bank balance sheet could reduce central bank independence from the fiscal authority. Does this worry? Um, and what checks and balances can mitigate this concern? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you're saying could CBDCs um exacerbate the problem of fiscal dominance, if you like, where the central bank is somehow subservient to the fiscal authorities. And I guess, so just to understand that question, I guess you have in mind something like a fiscal disbursement, you know, during the pandemic, where maybe the fiscal disbursements are made um, um, simply by expanding the money supply, you know, without uh, uh, that, you know, this is a use, that, that this is used uh, as part of a kind of fiscal policy. I think that's what you have in mind, right? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think the first thing to say is that that concern would be there even without CBDCs. Um, in that, uh, you know, that could be a concern, I should say, even without CBDCs. Monetary financing is something that's very old. And, uh, you know, when we look back to history, this is, uh, of course, a very important uh, uh, fault line for many countries that, that did not have um, a rigorous uh, monetary policy framework and central bank independence. Um, so, you know, I don't think CBDCs as such, um, you know, create the problem where there was none. I think if anything, what CBDCs, you know, might do is to actually um, make the economic policy more effective um, in that it can increase financial inclusion. It can actually expand financial inclusion. So just to give you an example, let's imagine that we're back in uh, March of 2020. We've, uh, we're in the early stages of the, the pandemic financial shock. We have an economic shutdown. Um, and uh, um, we are, you know, um, in a situation where households really don't have enough money to, uh, you know, liquid assets to actually go out and, uh, you know, buy groceries. Uh, how do we get money to people who need them? Well, you know, if everyone has a bank account and that uh, banking system works well, we can just transfer money to all the bank, uh, all the bank account holders. Um, but a CBDC could do that even more efficiently in that it would just appear, uh, you know, on your phone app, you know, just like that. And um, 
uh, of course, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, will need to be, um, uh, so, you know, the, so the design of this would be that, uh, you know, it's a retail CBDC that is, uh, that is accessible to the, to the general user. Uh, but in fact, in, in some of the experiments that have happened in China, for example, um, the, uh, you know, that's exactly the way that uh, the People's Bank of China has actually conducted those experiments where, you know, uh, there's a lottery, uh, a group of people are chosen to receive um, the uh, ECNY. And, uh, and then, you know, they, they can then use it in, um, in those, uh, you know, outlets that, uh, you know, they can, they can actually accept. Um, so, so I would say, so I would answer your question in two parts. The first part would be that, um, the, the blurring of the distinction between monetary and fiscal policy, you know, uh, would not be exacerbated. I think it's, you know, it's, that's probably something that just cuts across CBDC or non-CBDC. Secondly, the CBDCs will um, provide, you know, additional uh, levers for the authorities. Um, and here, the central bank would be, if you like, the payment agent for, you know, for the government. Um, but it's uh, but it's fully funded, if you like. Yeah, it's uh, fully funded through the through the government budget. Just to touch up, uh, touch upon the topic of inclusion. Um, I guess a related uh, a point is that some critics argue that the CBDCs could worsen global inequality because most research and R&Ds uh, relating to CBDCs takes place in advanced economies. What do you think of this argument? Well, actually, I disagree with that. And let me just uh, tell you why. I, um, I think the first thing to say is that... Um, the, some of the best innovations in the payment system, uh, let alone CBDCs, you know, have come from emerging and developing economies. Um, so to give you one example, um, you know, UPI, this is the payment system in India. Um, uh, it's, um, um, it's, it's an example of this open architecture that I was referring to uh, earlier in our conversation. Uh, you know, that's been around for around uh, now for just around 10 years, give or take. Uh, but it's really become a shining example of how, you know, um, a payment system can be introduced that actually respects uh, the triple imperative that I mentioned earlier. Um, so India doesn't uh, uh, have a CBDC, but this kind of PIC system, which is, sorry, the, the, the UPI system in India, um, is a system that uh, it has many resemblances to a CBDC, in that it has a digital ID system, it has the so-called APIs, application programming interfaces, that allows effective use of uh, ownership of individual data by the individual, uh, and interoperability. The other example, which is even newer, is uh, this uh, system called PIX, P-I-X, in, in Brazil. And that's been around for just over a year. Uh, but it's already signed up, you know, more than two-thirds of the population. Um, 50 million people have used, uh, have made a digital payment for the first time in their lives. Uh, and, you know, PIX is not a CBDC either, but it's, it's uh, very much in the same spirit. It's an open system. Uh, digital ID, interoperability, and so on. Now, um, 
why have India and Brazil succeeded so well in this area? Well, I think you know one reason is that um, the legacy payment system, uh, the legacy standards, and the and the incumbents in that payment system, you know, who of course you know are the are the gatekeepers of that kind of system, uh, you know, would have more of an incentive to to you know uh, um, to actually um, to uh, uh, to maintain their incumbency. Um, in many developing countries, of course, you know, without uh, these retail fast payment systems that I've mentioned, uh, from India and Brazil, uh, the banking, uh, you know, sector is a very you know, powerful, you know, player in that kind of economy, and still the 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 um, if you like the uh, the interests of the incumbents, um, uh, you know, mean that uh, financial inclusion, you know, still is a you know, work in progress, but. Um, the uh, development of CBDCs has been perhaps most uh, uh, most notable in China. Uh, so, if we if we look at these examples, they are examples where, um, if there is a concerted push, uh, there is less of a legacy system that um, that they need to you know replace. So, you're really designing based on a on a blank sheet of paper that allows the leapfrogging. Uh, you know, of, of existing technology. So in a way, um, uh, some of the best examples are from, from emerging markets, from developing economies. Uh, it's true that advanced economies have made more progress, uh, but it's not been universal. You know, the progress has been pretty, um, you know, uneven, I would say, across the, across the different, uh, you know, countries. Speaking of financial innovation and new technologies, decentralized finance has gained popularity lately as a potential alternative to the traditional financial system. How does the BIS view decentralized finance and do you have any concerns about this new development? Well, it's funny you ask that question because we, uh, you know, we uh, published um, a uh, piece in our quarterly review, actually, just uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, so, in the December issue of the BIS quarterly review, uh, we actually published a paper on on this precise topic. Um, so, DeFi or decentralized finance. I mean, this is, uh, uh, if you like, a um, a sub area of the broader uh, crypto ecosystem. It's um, uh, it's an ecosystem that uh, mimics some of the same kind of functions that are played by traditional intermediaries like banks or asset managers, um, but it's um, it's conducted on on the blockchain. So uh, you know whether it's Ethereum or whether it's one of the newer so-called layer one uh, blockchains, uh, it's it's really part of the broader cryptocurrency uh, in a universe. And what we say in that piece is, um, you know, this quest for decentralization, you know, it is, it is a, um, you know, it is, it is quite a, uh, you know, uh, you know, well-intentioned, uh, you know, goal. But um, in fact, the the reality is somewhat different from that kind of, um, you know, ideal. <clears throat> in that, when we look into um, how these systems actually work, um, I mean, the way the blockchain actually works is. You know, if you're Bitcoin, you have to have proof of work, and uh, it's the miner who actually wins the contest that has the right to attach the next block, and so on. 
if it's Ethereum, uh, it's proof of work currently, but there's a you know, shift towards proof of stake where it's the, uh, it's the people who have um, staked uh, the largest amount of Ethereum that will actually update. Um, now, um, and there are you know, different, different flavors of these blockchains out there. Now, the, so in practice, when we think about uh, you know, who actually has sway in the way that these blockchains operate, it is really the insiders who who have the largest stakes. So, um, you know, this is not uh, legally an equity claim um, uh, because you know those kind of concepts don't map very easily into the blockchain. But it's very close to having, if you like, insiders who are the equity holders in the system. And to that extent, um, you know, they're the ones who are, you know, in effect, the the operators of a more you know, centralized system, which has a kind of outward appearance of decentralization. But it's really, um, you know, in effect, quite centralized. And in any case, you know, when we think about uh, finance and contracting more generally, it's actually very difficult to, to think of a system where you have ticked all the possible contingencies so that you can write a smart contract that uh, anticipates all the possible questions down the road. To some extent, you need that uh, uh, ability to step back one step and and have um, the possibility to actually make discretionary decisions. And uh, this is the way that a typical company would op- operate, uh, or in in the market context, you know, there would be always the the ability to uh, to renegotiate contracts or you know to form new contracts. But those are actually pretty centralized. You know, um, uh, decision. So the, the so the term we use in the in the in this quarterly review piece is um, the decentralization illusion. Um, in the you know decentral the concept of, of decentralization is fine and good, uh, but the reality is quite different from the way that the ideal is often portrayed. Uh, but in any case. Um, some degree of discretion, some degree of decision-making that is outside uh, the blockchain is inescapable. Um, And we quickly come across, then come up against the question of the governance structure. Uh, You need a governance structure to to tackle these ideas, these kind of questions. I mean, the other big issue, which um, we we will certainly elaborate in, in our work, and we've done so in in some of the theoretical work is that to to operate something which uh, you know has like proof of stake or proof of work, you do need the incentives for the validators to actually do to actually play their role. And so, um, in the case of Bitcoin, you need to give rewards to the miners. Uh, you know, if you like, the miners are the validators in the in the Bitcoin blockchain. In a proof of stake system, you need to, you know, give rewards to people who have staked their coins, and um, and that means that uh, you know these profits, these rents, if you like, that go to the validators. That's really an essential feature uh, of of the blockchain itself. <clears throat> so, if you like, it's a you know it's a feature rather than a bug, and um, and that means that uh, you know these rents. Um, uh, you know, they are uh, a form of drag on you know, on the system itself. So, the, of course, the rewards go to the insiders. 
so there is a tremendous, I mean, this, is, this can be tremendous, tremendously lucrative to the first mover who has issued the coins and who has backed the venture. Um, but uh, if we think about the, the steady state and how these you know, systems will operate, um, there's a lot to be desired in terms of the, of the efficiency. And in any case, uh, you know, going back to the money laundering, um, you know, anti-money laundering efforts and financial crime, ransomware attacks and so on, um, many of the systems have sprung up in order to exploit the, you know, the absence of regulation, uh, you know, in this area. Um, and I think it's an open question, you know, uh, uh, how much of the enthusiasm that's currently there uh, will still be there once, um, you know, the, the proper safeguards are there to, to protect the customers. So, you know, that's in a way, if you like, the short version. Um, if you read the, um, if you read the quarterly review piece, uh, you know, we, we go into some of the, some of the detailed uh, uh, the facts and figures as well. Uh, my next question, and I believe something the audience will be eager to find out. What are your favorite books and what books would you recommend to the undergraduate community at the LSC? Well, that's um, that's a great uh, question, Sarah. Um, you know, I think broadly, um, I would say that you know, um, I I enjoy a lot uh, reading history books, especially economic history, because um, in a way you you get to realize that some of the concepts we take for granted, you know, they they have sprung up because of you know good reason. Uh, these arguments have been you know tried and tested. So one one book that I really enjoyed reading, you know, uh, in the in the early days of the pandemic, when we were all uh, when we were all you know cooped up and working from home, is this uh, book by Ulrich Binzel. Uh, Ulrich is a uh, that's B I N D S E I L. Um, so he's a he's an official in the in the European Central Bank, um, and uh, but but he's also a uh, a very talented uh, financial historian. Uh, so he has this wonderful book called Central Banking Before 1800. So you may have thought, well, you know, were there even central banks before 1800? Yes, of course, there were there were central banks, uh, but they weren't called central banks back then. You know, they were large banks, and uh, uh, you know, my my um, my friend and colleague Charles Goodhart, of course, has this wonderful book on. Uh, on the on the on the history of central banks, um, uh, but this book actually goes even further back. And um, the reason why I think this book is uh, such a great read is because it actually goes back to um, to the to the uh, establishment of really the early deposit banks uh, and uh, the beginnings of money, if you like, central bank money. Um, you know, we nowadays think of central banks as setting interest rates, um, you know, as part of the macro policy, um, you know, team. But even more basic is, if you like, uh, the, the role of central banks in issuing money. And, uh, you know, you, you, make, you make payments by, uh, you know, debiting the account of uh, the sender and crediting the account of the, of the receiver. Um, and you you do it through a bank, right? Um, just by transferring deposits from one person to another. And that's exactly what uh, the Bank of Amsterdam did uh, when it was set up in 
in the early 1600s, uh, so even before the Bank of England. And um, that uh, notion of deposit money um, uh, and what uh, merchants did actually uh, back then was they brought coins to the Bank of Amsterdam and the Bank of Amsterdam would uh, write up a deposit in someone's name um, in, in return for receiving the coins. And then the merchant would use the, the deposit balance you know, in the Bank of Amsterdam to, to pay other merchants, to settle financial claims, uh, and so on. So that's really the beginning of, if you like, wholesale funding, wholesale, uh, you know, the wholesale payment system. Um, and this book actually goes through that early history, and you realize that, uh, you know, there's really nothing new under the sun. The stable coin idea is already there. Um, it's very, very akin to money market funds. Um, so I think that's something that I would really highly um, uh, you know, recommend to, to you and your uh, you know, fellow, uh, fellow students at DLSC. Um, uh, I think the other book that I really enjoyed reading recently is the, is the book by Adam Tooze called Crash. I'm sure you've, you've, you've read that as well. It's a, it's really, it's a very big book, um, but it's a, it's a very good uh, take on uh, the broader context behind uh, the great financial crisis. And he's a historian, and so he's not um, uh, necessarily sort of hemmed in by some of the economic fashions. Uh, and he he can also give the uh, the the background in the in the political economy. Um, I could go on, but let me stop there, Sarah. Thank you. And finally, something we ask every economist we have on the podcast: What gives you hope? That's a great question. Um, well, you know, I think um, in the policy world, we always have to hope, you know, have hope. But, um, you know, since this is, an, uh, this is more of an academic podcast, let me just say that, uh, you know, going back to what I was saying about the LSC and how much I enjoyed um, uh, being at the LSC, I mean, it's a, it's a great place for debate, for, um, for really, um, you know, very active discussion. And the LSC is also, you know, remarkable in in having lots of different disciplines uh, all, you know, working together. Um, and I remember sitting on committees with uh, sociologists, with historians, with uh, anthropologists, and, and lawyers, and so on. Um, and I think, you know, as an economist, uh, we, you know, we we have lots of disagreements all the time between economists. And you know that's part of the um, you know that's part of the uh, the cut and thrust of debate. But I would say that economics um, is is a discipline where the the agreement is larger than the disagreements. So even though we disagree on specific policy issues, on specific you know doctrinal issues, sometimes uh, we agree on ninety nine percent of the underlying framework and. Uh, you know, uh, when we when we evaluate um, you know, applicants for uh, for um, you know student programs, when we you know uh, look at other colleagues' work, there's a great deal of you know agreement. And so, I think economics as an academic discipline is in a very good place. Um, and uh, uh, above all, you know, economics is a is a subject where uh, the empirical work really provides a kind of you know a check on 
um, and it keeps us honest, if you like, as a as a way to um, you know to really uh, give a check on the arguments, uh, on the cogency of the arguments themselves. So, um, what gives me hope? I think um, what gives me hope is that economics is in a good place, and no doubt we'll have many more challenges coming up. But I think we're very well equipped, uh, you know, uh, with you and your you know fellow students. I think the new generation. You know they're they're following in some very good um, uh, you know f- following in the footsteps of of some very good people. Thank you so much for your time. Very good. Thank you very much for listening. We want to thank Annie, Sanjana, and Ruby from the podcast team, Dr. Petropoulou, Dr. Shapiro, and Alice Donko from the Department of Economics for their support in the making of this episode. We hope you tune in next time.